Ladies and gentlemen, we'll begin our final descent. As we prepare for landing, please make sure your seatbelt is fastened and your seat back and tray tables are stowed. Also this time, please put away all carry-on items, including laptop and devices of similar size for landing. landing. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare to enter Culturama with Diva. Hello, Culturama listeners, and welcome to this exciting episode of Culturama with Diva, where simplicity is the best thing. This program is brought to you by Inner Sanctum Entertainment LTD. We are Inner Sanctum Entertainment Limited, proud sponsor of Culturama with Diva. We encourage you to listen and join us in a journey of cultures, ideas, and innovations as Diva takes us around the world with her guests. An amazing show with an amazing host. We thank you for accepting the challenge of opening your mind. We are Inner Sanctum Entertainment Limited and we are a proud sponsor of Culturama with Diva. This is a very exciting program and I have two business partners to record, part one and part two. We will be recording part one today. The gentleman, although a lady should go before gentlemen, but we're going to switch things around a bit. So I have the handsome gentleman, Mr. Barry Shire with me. Hi, Barry. Welcome to the program. Hello, Tia. I'm glad to be here with you. I met Barry at a virtual Let's Go Shopping event hosted by Elegance Insights. Uh, Laura Legendary, she was a previous guest. So, Barry, tell me about you. You have a very interesting bio. Let's begin. Who is Barry Shire? Okay, let me, we'll start somewhere in the middle and end up at the beginning. Um, I'm, a, I'm a totally blind preemie. I was a 28-week baby, one pound, 15 ounces, which, of course, has turned into an awful lot larger now, but we can't help that. Um, I come out of the age of retrolental fibroplasia in the late, in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And there were an awful lot of blind kids with that because as your listeners may know, an awful lot of blind kids who were very um, delivered early and underweight were put into incubators and had 100% oxygen, which basically destroyed the retinal tissue. But um, this, this business is like a second part of my life. Guidelines and Gadgets, which is a company that Kay and I find, founded in 2013, was and still is supposed to be a retirement company. And I mean that because uh, we were thinking after leaving Boston, well, we were, we were in the process when we when we started thinking about guidelines, but in the next uh, year to 18 months, we moved from Boston to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to retire. But this was truly an idea for doing something fun and retiring. Now, I had done some assistive technology company previously. Um, I'm actually a retired attorney and business consultant who actually 
built about 100 companies as an entrepreneur or helped others as uh, a venture capitalist and person who was either funding, developing, or in some cases, taking companies that were in deep trouble and uh, trying to turn them around so they could still function. My world was healthcare and health insurance. And in fact, I was a White House advisor in the Clinton administration. I mean, I loved working. I traveled around for about 30 years, never basically, I just, about 250 days a year, I'm basically on a plane. It was a very crazy life for about 30 years. And I loved it. And we had we had 12 offices and work in 48 states and 20 foreign countries. And I was never home. And I had two kids growing up. So when I got home on the weekends, it was pretty much that's what I could do. That was literally between about 1984 and, well, actually, I'd say 20, 2006, pretty much. Well, what happened is that in 2003, an individual came to me who some of you know by the name of Chris Gray, who was president of the American Council of the Blind at that point. And he had seen a product that he thought had great potential for blind users. And it was a talking internet radio, uh, which is, and it's amazing that it was an internet radio going back 20 years that was speech accessible. And he had, and it had been developed by a bunch of engineers working for a large company in Southern California. And it was nothing like the business these people were in, but it was sort of said they had this idea. They told the owner of the company who was Israeli that they would like to do this. And they said about in a year later, they created the first accessible internet radio box that I'd ever seen. So eventually what happened is I went out to um, I went out to California to look at this and I was really enthralled by what they had done. So we created a company called Talking Solutions. And that's how I sort of got started in this business. Three events. Well, I tried the, the, the process was being developed and Obviously, the guy who would, the guy who owned this business really could care less about a piece of accessible technology. His guys had done it, but it was such a big company that he didn't monitor them every day, much less every month. So I went to him and said, I want to buy him out. And he said, well, you're going to have to give me a lot of money. And I realized one of the first one of the first rules of business. I don't know if he thought I was dumb, stupid or, or all three, but. He said, well, that's, this is worth $2 million. I said, it isn't even operating yet. All you've got is the IT platform, the software, and the first hardware unit in prototype. And you want $2 million for something that doesn't exist. So I offered him about three quarters of a million dollars and figured he'd either maybe think about it. But what he did, and because he's the kind of person he was, he basically told me where I could go and leave him alone forever. So... I really wanted to do this business. So I just decided to hire away all of his people who were working on this project. One day he got resignations from five engineers. And it was like, these, this was the best team of speech engineers in the world. And I can say that because a year later, not only did they make the talking um, internet radio box with a talking DVD layer, they actually gave me the only talking treadmill I've still ever seen for my birthday in 2003, these people could speech into anything. And of course that got me even more. So we started developing this product, which was great. Only thing is we had a prototype ready. We actually had our first two units and we decided to go 
we I'd hooked up with the people from Matsushita, which is Matsushita Electric in Los Angeles, which is actually Panasonic. Wanted to go to them to have them prototype about 100 units for us. And I had already a great deal of demand. The Alaska legislature wanting to use its radio reading service with these boxes had already put up about $50,000. So we were really well on our way. And here's where the story gets really strange. My vice president of information technology decided it was more important to carry his laptop on the plane than our box. So he stuck our $1.25 million box in terms of development R&D costs into the baggage compartment. Somewhere around the stop in Ontario, California in 2003, that box disappeared, never to be found. We lost all of the technology. The insurance company on my, on my business insurance said, we're not gonna pay $1 million for anything flying. This is, you're crazy, here's 60,000 bucks, shut up and go home. So I found another company to affiliate with, which is Solutions Radio out of the Netherlands. They have done an internet blind related service in Europe. The boxes did not talk, but there were ways to use them. It was a little bit less technology, a lot more difficult. But we did hook up with them and work with them for a couple of years. Along the way, I was introduced to the person who had actually made and manufactured the first talking prescription bottle. And he was having such trouble marketing it that he was about to close down the company. And I convinced him to let me take it over. And for the next two years, we actually redesigned it. And some of you are familiar with this. This is It, it, it was a little bottle to which you put in a prescription bottle. There was a recorder in the base and the pharmacist would record your prescription information and then place the bottle in it. And these, so it only would work with one prescription at a time. But remember, this is 17, 18 years ago. So I took that company over and we got the product literally into CBS and the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog after about two more years of work. But it had cost me so much money that we were really in a position that we really couldn't put up any more funding for it. So I let the original owner take the product back now that it was developed. I don't think he, he sold in a small number of them, but not nearly what we had been doing in the two years. But again, in order to keep your ventures going, which is the one thing that people never realize when they start out, you always need more money than you're going to think. Two times, three times, four times, but it's never less. It's always more because just like in life, things come up you didn't count on. At the same time we were doing this, because I was looking for smaller products, we manufactured one of the first infrared talking thermometers. And it was pretty primitive and inaccurate by today's standards, which I'll get to in a minute. But we made that, we did a couple of other devices, but I got to a point where I was having to make some really significant changes in life and lifestyle. And after five, five years, I think four, four and a half, five years, we had to shut down, we had to put talking solutions on hold, which was really, really unfortunate because these engineers and stuff one of them is a senior guy at Amazon. I mean, these these were really high-powered people, and they're great. And I don't know what all of them have done, but I'd love to have that team together 20 years later. Oh, my so, God. This I is know, awesome. I, I know. You had, I hadn't told you any of that part. It got a rest. It got a rest for five years. I went through a lot of life change, um, everything from a divorce to a new partner, who, of course, you're going to be hearing tomorrow, or in part two, who is Kay Ann. 
tell us about your childhood years, your, your college life, high school life. I grew up in upstate New York. I'm from Buffalo. I grew up in a family that was pretty, pretty well off. And so I was, I was educated literally from first grade, the first six years in a special classroom in a public school. So we had nine students in this group. This is a pretty amazing statistic. Of the nine of the, us, three of us are attorneys, myself going to Yale Law School and two of the other kids going to Harvard. So when we look at that class of nine kids, many who had different multiple disabilities, we laugh. Um, Scott Marshall, who was is at the Federal Communications Commission, Scott had been a, a, an elementary school classmate of mine, and another guy in Philadelphia who went to law school. So it was pretty amazing. Well, after that, it was time to try a public school. It was a difficult transition, as it is for many blind kids. And we're talking 1963. And what they would call bullying now, but they didn't call it anything then, was people coming up to you in the hall, pushing you and running away. Really childish behavior. I dealt with a lot of that. Fortunately, what I, what I, what I cared about was basically academics. And after my first year, I got into accelerated placement classes. And I didn't have a lot of friends, but I was sort of like, that didn't matter. The schoolwork was, I mean, switching from a place where you had done basically arithmetic to be thrust into a geometry class. And again, we didn't have all the tools that you have today. They were the only thing I can remember was a, was a protractor for drawing angles and a cube rhythm slate, which is the old French cube slate that you could do calculations on. But it was, it was science was particularly a challenge then. As a matter of fact, the, the school allowed me, and I regret this a little bit, to opt out of chemistry and physics and substitute other science courses that were basically geared to, um, I guess I'd say mid-level students. So things like earth science, and I, and I really regret it, but you know what? I wouldn't have been able to do it at the time, I think. I think there were just too many some difficulties. So I'm out of high school my senior year. I'd been active in a couple of clubs. I worked with both the debate team and with the chess club in high school. So it's it's time to apply to college. Now, high school, I didn't even talk about yet. High school got a little bit better. I knew more people, but basically, I was somebody who was still primarily by themselves. I loved to read. Um, I ended up taking up guitar when I was 14, which was, thank goodness for that. And But most of my time, as sometimes many of us face, was figuring out ways to keep yourself learning, interested, and amused. Um, but what was growing and what really is not talked about a lot is I think what drove me besides the thing about learning and stuff was a great degree of anger because I knew I was separate. I knew that I didn't fit. I wasn't part of the, the, the of basically the high school class. I just, I was sort of on the outside looking in the best incident of that is I got a phone call one day from a woman, a girl I knew, and she goes, I know you're not going to the senior prom. We have a foreign student here from New Zealand. You really, we would really appreciate it if you would take her so that she can have the experience. It was a gesture, but at the same time, it's a, I was definitely an outsider. Well, the anger kept sort of fueling stuff. And I started applying to colleges my senior year, as we did then. 
I had pretty good scores on the SATs. And what ended up happening, and this is another coincidence in life. This is, this is one of the strangest things that I can imagine. I had accepted um, at Williams College, which is a small, um, I won't say isolated, but it's, it's a very, very small school. Um, and, and really that Williams had basically about three, two, 2,500, 3,000 students. Well, I'd accepted it and I was going to go up and, and I'd gone up and visited the campus. And then the, the guy in where I live, Buffalo, who was the alumni director for that area, called me because he wanted to talk to me. He hadn't met me. I was the one person in the state that had gotten in that he didn't interview. So he didn't know why. So he started talking to me. And it was not as much about me as it was him telling me about how great the school was because it had great athletics. He'd been a football player. So he went on for maybe 15 minutes talking to me about sports, athletics. And, and I'm like, wait a minute, this has no relevance to me. After I talked to him, and I'm just, I am thankful that, that I was led by some guided hand to call up Williams the next day and rescind my acceptance. And I then, because I'd had a, a number of other acceptances, made a trip to Boston, Tufts University, where in Boston, where I spent basically pretty much the next 40 years of my life. Um, pretty, pretty weird start. The third week in school, well, the first night at school, all of um, our car and trailer were stolen with everything I owned, including all of my Braille equipment. And there was, I mean, Perkins, everything was gone. Um, they found the Perkins in a garbage can about a week later. But I mean, what a way to start college. The somebody had just gone in, hot-wired the car, and drove it away. So we had to replace everything while I was in Boston. Thank goodness for my parents, because they, they, they're the kind of people who said, we're just going to get it done. Three weeks later, a fire starts out under my bed in the dormitory and burns the dorm to the ground. Um, I actually pushed my roommate out a window because he couldn't see where he was going. When we were thankfully on the first floor, it was about eight feet up. And then I just put my head down and ran right through the door and people sort of pulled me up. The whole building burned. So in three weeks, I started college with two crazy kinds of things that shouldn't happen to anybody, especially somebody who's just trying to learn mobility and figure out about the campus. The one thing that was going for me was the anger was still there. I just wanted, it was like you want to show everybody or you want to be perceived or thought of as equal to everybody. And in high school, I spent some time in, 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 with the debate club. Well, what that turned into, Tufts had previously had a debate team that competed, but had never won anything. It had been disbanded pretty much. And so I got a list of everybody in the admissions process for my sophomore year, their freshman year, who had done high school debate. What that turned into is me creating a team, finding a coach, getting the university to pump money into us. And for the next three years, I spent between 30 and 40 weeks traveling to tournaments across the country, winning over 100 trophies, winning a, um, winning in a number of national tournaments, actually. And I almost, it was like I had found a place where I belonged. And, it, and that was showing me that that kind of energy out of that kind of anger could be put to good use. With that kind of record, basically, when I went for references to people, it was, it was really gratifying to see what people were, were, were doing. 
I ended up getting into the probably the seven top law schools in the United States. I chose Yale because they hadn't had a blind student in a long, long time. I mean, we're talking historic. If you know, they, so I they no no help, no procedures, nothing. Harvard had quite a number of people, and I said, you know what? I'm the only one here, and Yale was smaller classes. So I spent three. I as I said, I loved I loved college life. I loved the experience. I did several. Summers of work experience uh, in various places, so I really got a handle on what w- the working world was like. That's a big problem for blind kids. Still, there are an awful lot of blind kids growing up who really need but don't get the opportunity to understand working environment and working relationships and people relationships. Just a reminder, folks, that I'm speaking with the handsome gentleman, Mr. Barry Shire, and this program is brought to you by. In the song of entertainment, LTD. If you need instrumentals, recording, mixing, or mastering, maybe a music video, photo shoot, or graphic designing, need bouncy castles, face painting, popcorn, cotton candy, or characters for the kids, want to do online or offline promotion, maybe both. Let's print your t-shirts and everything else. Here at Inner Sanctum Entertainment Limited, we got you covered. Reach us on FB and Instagram at Inner Sanctum Entertainment LTD, YouTube at Inner Sanctum Entertainment, and Twitter at iSanctum Studios. Or call us at 1 That's 1 So, Barry, let me ask you were your parents supportive? What was family life like? They were very supportive, but at the same time, I think they were very, they were the most relieved people that could be when I went out on my own. And I think that led to something which probably in retrospect was not a good idea. In my first year of law school, I met a woman who lived in Boston. I had known her roommate and we started dating. It was pretty much the first person I dated. And we had decided the next year, actually, I think, almost two years later, to get married. And I think part of my move toward it so quickly was I could sense my parents really wanted to be, you know, my dad was running a company that really took him, I mean, he he was constantly traveling and he was constantly busy. And my mom is the one who did all the reading to me in high school. I mean, she's she's the maker of a lot of stuff. I cannot say above about all the stuff that she did. Um, I remember one thing one day that I was looking for a bunch of braille cases from the library that never came because I was going to summer camp and they didn't come. And it was the day before I went. She called up the postmaster for the city of Buffalo and demanded that he go and look personally through the back room of a post office until he found them because he, she was sure they were there and they were. And and then she just ran down in, into the city to get them. I mean, my mom will stop at nothing. She's an amazing person at 95. She still is. So I probably got into a situation where I was finishing law school. I decided to start practicing with a firm in Atlanta, and I was getting married all at the same time. In retrospect, probably that wasn't the smartest thing in the world, but we all make certain mistakes like that. What was technology like in terms of when you were at the law school? that it was it was the kind of environment that uh anything that i need well anything there were there there was a recording for the blind chapter in new Haven. thank 
God, because I became friendly with the people, the, all the volunteers and the person who ran the chapter, and they became, became another community for me at the same time recording all my books. But I'll tell you, one thing I learned that, oh, well, I had one other thing that made law school even possible. In September 1973, I'd read a newspaper article about this company called Cambridge Associates in New Haven. And they had they claimed to invented a machine that would allow you to listen to a cassette tape at literally half the time with no change in speed. Now, we know that now is speech compression, but that was the original speech compression prototype that got developed by a number of engineers back almost 60 years ago. I went over to their office, which is basically, you know, a, a couple of rooms somewhere. And they, I said, show this to me. I want to see it. Because I knew I was going to, what you know about law school is you're going to have thousands of pages of reading. They showed me them. I couldn't believe it because we're all, we were used to the variable Donald Duck, um, the old Panasonic PC-105 tape recorders that if you speeded them up, they might give you an electric shock for the trouble, which some of them did. But I wanted this machine. He said, it's not for sale. I said, I don't care how much you charge me. And this I get from my parents, which is if you need it and it's going to help, let's figure it out how to do it. The guy charged me $500 for a $10 cassette recorder, basically with $490 for the speech compression chip. It was a prototype. I kept that machine for 20 years and it literally saved my life in law school because the I couldn't keep up with all. I could either go to class or I could do all the reading. I couldn't do both well. In some courses, I made the decision not to read, but to go to all the classes. In other courses, I said, you know what? I got to keep up with the material. I won't be able to attend all the classes. So I did the reading. I ended up running an employment agency just about. I had 40 readers that I paid that I assigned every week. And because, and maybe this is the way I feel about it, I, 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 don't, I like being in control of stuff as opposed to people telling me what they're going to be able to do. In law school, you're reading uh, 10, 20,000 pages a year. It's, it's, it's mind boggling. And now of course oh, it's gosh. a lot is online. I mean, we had nothing then. I used to take a Perkins Brailler into my law school classes, which a lot of professors and some pretty notable people were not real pleased with. Um, but the, the fact that, I mean, they gave me a very rough time. Um, yes. I had, I had to work with them to even, um, get my 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 examinations there was a, rec a recording for the blind professor at the law school who was a volunteer for rfb so he recorded my exams mm -hmm. but um it was you know i mean forget the extra time stuff forget any of it it was right. just you do it and get it done so these 40 readers i bought tape recorders for so everybody had by the by the second year of law school i was giving people assignments every week I was keeping this all on my, all on the Perkins trailer. And I did, you know, somebody would read 50, 100 pages, 200 pages for the week. We pay them every time they delivered material. I mean, it was like building, it was the greatest, greatest experience for building a business later on. So I finished in law school. I had actually my, my second year, I'll tell you how bad things were. My second year of law school in a place like Yale, everybody, gets lots of job offers for the summer internships, yes. five, 10, 15. 
I got nothing. It got so, I mean, you talk about me, my, my grades were, they weren't top of the class, but they were easily in the top third or quarter. So I was managing, but no, I mean, I had people tell me, I'm just sorry, our firm doesn't want a blind person. You could never, you could never talk with a client. You would embarrass us. I mean, I heard every excuse in interviewing. I, I did over 300 law firm interviews in my second and third year of law school. That's how challenging it was. In my second year, a friend of mine who was a very active um, leader of the Chicano movement and the feminist movement on the Yale campus, she went to the she went to the dean of the uh, dean of the school, and she said, "This is not right. We we are we're you know we're looking at all this stuff. We're talking about you know activism, and we got somebody here who can't get any job at all. You've got to do something." And he made a call to an old colleague of his who was at a, a large law firm, O'Melvy and Myers in Southern California, which is why I ended up going there for my second summer. But if it hadn't been for him, I wouldn't have been working. And as it turned out, it worked out because they found out I could do the work. They offered me, I didn't want to live in Los Angeles because of transportation. Los Angeles for blind people was a challenge for transport. I mean, paratransit didn't exist then. Um, and even, I mean, I had an hour and a half bus ride each day, each way to the law firm when I was working in LA for that summer. So I moved to Atlanta and I started practicing with a law firm and I failed. I mean, you learn from failure. I, it's, I, I could not do at the speed they needed work done because legal research in that time was using a reader and going uh -huh. and, and when you're doing stuff for clients, it's like, there's no, it's it's all perfect. I mean, associates are trained and even yelled at in those days. I used to get screamed at all the time. My partners, you're not doing this right. You're not thorough enough. I knew within a year and a half it wasn't going to work. But one thing happened that taught me something. They were so frustrated. The partners were so frustrated with me. And I was doing labor law at the time. And they gave me an assignment and said, we have a client who wants to build a new plant in Mississippi. And they want to know where they should build it and what would the conditions be like. So why don't you take a look at the labor laws about um, what the labor sort of what what the status for employees, you know, was it a good state to, to start a company, particularly in terms of did the employer have most of the power or their strong unions, et cetera? Well, I realized that looking in the law books wasn't going to tell me what they wanted to know. What wanted to know was talking to people. And I decided, and I don't know what moved me to do this, I started calling up the president of the Chamber of Commerce in Jackson. And I started calling up heads of corporations and explained what I was doing. You can learn so much by careful yes. interviewing of people. This is what you call you, advocacy. As you, yeah, yeah, as you well know. It's, it's advocacy, but it's sort of saying, I want to find out. I mean, this is, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your company. Tell me how you got started. It's what you're doing so well now, Tia. It's the same kind of thing. You're interviewing people, you're bringing people out. Well, I did it with a group of people that eventually turned into a memo. The partner was shocked. He goes, this is the first good piece of work you've done. I realized then that I didn't fit in that firm. Um, I had done some work in the healthcare world um, because at the time, these things, some of it we call HMOs in the States, things like Kaiser and um, well, most, most of them are now all insurance companies, but it was, 
This was an industry that was starting to develop in the mid-1970s, which were packaging healthcare and trying to make care under one roof, primary care specialty. And that was, those were organizations, the federal government had passed a law giving assistance to these startups. I got an assignment on that stuff, and for whatever reason, I liked it. I went looking for a job in Atlanta. I couldn't get one. We we're going to have to pick up and move again. I couldn't get a job anywhere. I finally ended up with a legal job in Amherst, Massachusetts, with a company that only had seven employees that made me take a major pay cut. My wife was not happy at all about Amherst is rural. I mean, it's a small town in Western Massachusetts, about two hours from Boston. I mean, it was like, how did I end up going from Yale to this place? Well, as luck would have it, it turned out to be an extremely successful healthcare startup. I started just working on legal stuff. I left five years later as basically the chief administrative officer. I had wow. done legal, I did, I did claims management. I learned the business of this thing from the inside. And maybe just because this is the way I do things, when I started learning, I started talking to other people in the industry. My boss hated it, but for whatever reason, the trade association for the, what, what, for the health insurance industry at the time, the general counsel said, this guy has got some ideas. So they offered me a, a thing to speak at one of their symposia. And I developed some claims procedures that basically were about three or four years ahead of their time, mm -hmm. at least with people. So the next thing I know, I'm getting invited to Washington all the time. And these guys are starting to sponsor me and fly me all over to, to, give speeches at their various conferences on various top, you know, educational topics. Yes. So I literally built in five years a national platform while working for a company that the boss wanted everything possible to keep me basically on my desk chair and never move. So finally, I quit. And I, I, I just said, the, la the last day, you'll love this. You want to talk about antagonism? At the time, I, I did have artificial lenses like a number of us wear. As I was, as I was, they were, they were doing a goodbye lunch. And I just said, I want to give a speech and I want to thank my boss who is more blind than any other of you here. I took my eye out and dropped it in his coffee. Yeah. And it was like, it was the only way of aggression I could get back at him for, for those years of challenge. When I quit, I'd been applying for jobs at the same time. And I ended up in this because of all the national exposure, you know, news, newspaper stuff, um, speeches and publications. At age 30, I got a job as the president and CEO of a new startup health plan in Boston. Big mistake for them and for me. I went to Boston. They, I mean, I couldn't believe I was making $60,000 a year in 1982. I'm like, wait a minute. This is wonderful. I didn't, didn't know the first thing about running a company. I had a job. I, I learned things, but you don't, you don't, the only way you learn about building a business and running a company is pretty much by failing. And I did it in spectacular fashion. Um, it also was not the right time for this business. The idea was funded by the city of Boston. It was an experimental healthcare program. And a year afterwards, and they, and actually there were people who wanted it to fail, which I didn't know about before I got there. Within a year I was fired and I'm like, okay, we have a house in Boston. I've got one kid and another one coming and I don't have a job. That was when I said, all right, I got to do something. I'm going to start working on my own. 
And that in 1984 was where I just said, we're going to build it. We're going to learn, watch what other people have done. I did have a couple of short um, segments at two major law firms as a senior partner for healthcare. So when I came in back into law, I came in because by this time, I was becoming a nationally recognized person in the, fear of, in the field of HMOs and healthcare. And I decided to go out on my own, did a couple of law firm pieces, what I thought that might be, set up a consulting firm at the same time. And for the next 20 some odd years, um, Shoyer Management turned into a major player on the national stage. Um, we were the smallest healthcare consulting boutique in the country, pretty much that were competing with all the major big five accounting firms and consulting firms. And we rarely lost because what I ended up doing and it's things I learned that helped later on is I looked for people who didn't just want a job for some reason, whether they were angry, whether they were aggressive, whether they just were driven like I had been. And that led me to ending up hiring a cadre of senior executive women and healthcare Senior jobs had not very much been filled by women running hospitals, um, which is some of the things we did running insurance companies. I hired a team of six vice presidents, all who were given the job of running various companies that we were managing or building. And what that group did is succeed beyond anything I could have believed. It was like they were at the same place about being driven as I was. And so we were this little company that grew and grew and grew to we were doing about $10 million a year and about a million and a half dollars profitability um, by the middle of 1990s. And I was doing, I mean, I was getting, we were getting things like I took over Blue Cross Blue Shield of Rhode Island. I took over companies in other states that were having difficulties, either the boards of directors, the state insurance commissioners, whatever it was, we were, we were put on an equal field with anybody in the business. And in fact, I heard a lot of people go, I don't get this. What's this blind person doing out, out competing us for this stuff? I just, all I loved work. I truly loved it more than anything else in the world. And that may have been my downfall later on. But so by the late 1990s, um, we were we were sort of running this crazy company, living this crazy lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, something in access technology lands on my desk from a friend. And I said, you know what? We're going to do something else. And the world of healthcare was changing. The consulting world was changing. And I said, let's go do this. So we started we started talking solutions. Unfortunately, when the internet radio went down, everything came down because we couldn't rebuild it. So here we are after a long, you know, 25 year career trying to say, okay, what am I going to go do now? And that takes us to where guidelines came together because so it's, it's been a really up and down place. I want to do a part two with you, Barry, because this is a really uh, inspirational and uplifting story. Life is a journey. Live good, love God. One love, one heart. Let's get together and feel good. See you soon. Hello, I'm Sydney Thorpe. Sydney Sizer is here to help you meet your audio recording needs. Call or WhatsApp 876-281-2801 or you can email me at sidnesizer at gmail.com or 
S-I-D-N-E-S-I-Z-E-R at Outlook.com Or you can Skype me using Sidnesizer as my Skype name. Sidnesizer We can talk. Sidnesizer Where we love to make good things happen.